Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Okay, I guess it's time for us to begin. It's good to see all of you tonight. I want to welcome everybody to our midweek Bible study. If you're visiting with us, we hope that you'll enjoy our study together tonight. and We hope that you'll come back and be with us. We are continuing our class that we're calling Fortifying Our Faith. And the purpose for us to do this is to reassure us that our faith is a rational belief, you've heard me say that term, that follows the evidence. And so the purpose behind it is so that we can be confident, so we can be sure of what we believe and that really we don't have a basis for being shaken up or concerned in any way when it comes to somebody challenging us and opposing us. So for those of us who have been Christians a long time, this is to reassure us. For those of us who are maybe babes in Christ, what we would say, new people, new Christians, new brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe some of this material, you know, you never even dreamed of trying to address it, but hopefully it's being beneficial to you. And then maybe someone who's struggling in their faith, uh, maybe this will help them in some way. So you may be wondering, well, Mark, where in the world are we going with this class? I'm sure some of you are wondering that. Uh, so what we're doing here is we started by looking at attacks on the Word of God. Okay, so that's what we've been working on here. And where we're going next is attacks on the person of God or attacks on God himself. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of a side uh, road and we're going to talk about faith and science. You know, science will trip up some people. Uh, but what we want to show is that faith and science are very compatible. In fact, science is even better when you have faith. And then the last thing that we'll do is we'll take a look at what I'm calling attacks on Christianity in secular culture. Uh, I don't have to tell you about all the madness that's going on in the world and the madness that is going on in this country. And so we thought it would be good to take a look at some cultural issues. And these cultural issues are also impacting... Uh, many people um, in their faith. There's so many things that we could discuss. We really just don't have time to do it all. And so Paul and I have talked about this. <clears throat> this will be, I think, a quote, almost a series of classes that we'll address sometime in the future. It just takes time to prepare for them. But when we feel like they're needed, we'll reach out and, and we'll do, the, do a, a class again and, and try to attack a different set of uh, topics. You know, we can't be naive we can't be naive about this and say that this is not impacting the church because it is. In fact, it's impacting us right here at West Huntsville. And so we have got to take the time to look at some of these things that we're discussing. So tonight we're in the middle of the question, exploring the question, has the Bible been corrupted? That's what we're looking at. We're in the middle of that. And so we're going to continue to discuss that tonight and we're going to 
pick up where we left off, and we're going to act like a textual critic. So we're going to do some textual criticism tonight. I'm going to get a little bit technical. Hang in there with me. I think it'll make sense the way that the information is presented. Again, 99% uh, of this is not original with me, okay? And I hope that I'm not getting in the way of the material. So I hope the material is coming through to you, and I'm just kind of, you know, transparent, and it's going right, right into your, your heart. So, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verse 8, if you want to look at that in, in your Bible. Let me see if I can speed ahead here to where we need to be. So we went through a lot of stuff last week. We talked about so-called errors, which are really, uh, Troy and Tony and I were talking about this before class. And, you know, errors might be a, a harsh word for that. Mistakes might be a better term. So we're looking at textual variants now. And remember, we talked a little bit about that. We talked about external, internal evidence, and we'll go through that in just a moment. Well, we got down to the point where we want to act like the textual critic, and we're going to use Acts chapter 6, verse 8 as our example. And that reads, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And so the word that we're concerned about here is the term faith. And we read that in the New King James, in the King James it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, and then we see that in the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, in the ESV, and many others, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power. So our variant is right there. There's a textual variant. And remember, what we're talking about here are variants in the Greek manuscripts for the New Testament. Okay, we're not talking about the Old Testament here. We're talking about the New Testament and we pointed out how much evidence, how many copies we have, and we've gone through all that, and we're going to revisit some of that here in just a moment as we act like the textual critic. We talked about, if you look at a Greek New Testament, and I happen to have one up here. Again, I can't read it, but my Greek expert is right here. So if you want him to read something for you, I'm sure you'll be glad to after class. But if you get one of these, it's a Greek manuscript at the bottom of most every page, if not every page, you have what are called the, what's called the critical apparatus. And what is the critical apparatus? It's the section that will go verse by verse and will have notes about the textual variants. And the and, and the example I'm going to show you tonight doesn't have this, but the first thing that they usually have at the front of um, a verse is a letter. And that letter is, there's like A, B, C, and D, I believe, indicates the confidence level of the accuracy of what they have put actually in their manuscript. Again, this particular example we're going to look at tonight doesn't have it, but what it does is down in the bottom in the critical apparatus, it ties it back to the verse. So you have the verse up there, you have the manuscript evidence, and so that's what we're going to do with Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And so the manuscript evidence for this particular manuscript has four different readings to be considered. Okay, so reading number one uses the term faith. That is, it says, full of faith and power. We noted that earlier. There's another variant that says grace and faith. There's a third variant that says faith and grace of the Spirit. And there's a fourth that says grace that is, full of grace and power. 
Okay? So, <clears throat> a little bit of just logical reasoning here, just looking at this. So, either number one and number four are what we call independent adjustments of a longer reading, or number two and number three have arisen from combining number one and number four. Remember, we call that conflation. That was the technical term that we used where a copyist would take two different manuscripts and would combine the material together because the copyist didn't want to lose what might actually be the original. Because remember, we talked about the genealogical tree of how the manuscripts can, um, can get changed over time. All right, so a little bit of reasoning up front. So here's the critical apparatus for that verse. This is out of a Greek uh, manuscript. And so there's some interesting things here. There's a lot of symbols. It looks like a bunch of mathematics, right? Uh, and uh, it looks very complicated, but it's really not that complicated. So let's walk through it. So you'll notice that there are little uh, vertical dash bars, okay? And what that is, is that is the beginning of a variant. So uh, they're marked uh, that way. So this is the break between variants. And so you see that what we're looking at is that's the beginning of the second variant. And then the next, that got really blurry, didn't it? The next dashed line is the beginning of the third variant or the, the next manuscript evidence. And then there's the one for the fourth one. And then at the very end, there's a solid bar. And that notes that that is the end of the set of variants for that particular verse. And, of course, the verse that we're concern, concerned about here is, is verse 8. All right? So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look at the evidence for the first textual variant for verse 8, which is faith. And so we have faith. And so you see that it's highlighted there. And so let's take a look at, which I know you can't see that very well, but let's take a look at what this is. So what, what actually is there is the word pisteo. James, I'm looking at you. Is that right? Pisteo? P-I-S-T-E-U-O uh, for faith, right? Pisteo. There you go. I can't ever say that right. So very good. And then you have, after that, you're going to have the manuscript evidence, and we'll take a look at that. Okay? So let's walk through it. So the first thing you see is this M that is written in Old English. And what that is, and by the way, what you can do is if you, you go, well, how do you know all this? You go to the front of your Greek manuscript, and it has a legend, basically. It tells you what all of this stuff means. Again, remember I reminded you that if you ever want to know about what your particular translation or version of the Bible that you're using is based on, you need to go read the fine print in the front of your Bible, which many of us don't do, right? But anyway, what that means is that's the majority text. That means that there are a lot of readings that are supported by the majority of manuscripts here. And the thing to note about this is that many of these are late. What we mean is they're, they're younger, they're not older. Remember, the older the manuscript is, we consider it more valuable. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate all the time, but most of the time, because that's closer in age to the original text, that's really more weighty in these types of matters. All right, so the next thing is a version. It's called Syriac Harklensis. It was made by Thomas Harkel in AD 616. 
And then there's only one more. It was written by one of these so-called church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, who died in about 394. Okay, so that's the manuscript evidence for the first variant. All right, well, what's uh, manuscript evidence do we have for the second variant? Well, this is for the reading grace and faith. And so we have this symbol E, which means Laudianus. It's a 6th century uncial. Remember uncials, remember cursives, remember versions, all those good things. Remember the lectionaries, all these things were things that were used to draw from, to come to the text. Uh, And that's pretty much it for that textual variant. That's not a lot, is it? All right, what about this one? Faith and grace of the Spirit. Well, you have this, uh, this letter here that represents an 8th and 9th century unseal. And again, that's it. Okay? So again, not a lot of evidence there. Now let's take a look at this last one. You can already tell that there's a lot more there, can't you? All right, let me catch up in my notes here so I can make sure I'm tracking properly. All right, so... Um, Let's pause just for a second here and talk about this for a moment. So there really wasn't a lot of external evidence for number two and number three, was there? Uh, and remember, there, the internal evidence, or what we called last week, what's called transcriptional probability. It's a big term for, hey, we prefer the shorter reading. Okay, remember that? We went through that last week. Um, would imply that two and three probably are the result of conflation. We've already said that. So it's more likely that the scribe knew about both reading one and number four and therefore combined them. So what we're going to do is we're just going to eliminate two and three for now. Okay? All right? So now let's look at this this last variant. All right? So uh, we've already talked about this. The evidence for two and three is meager and late. Uh, We already talked about the conflation. And so now we're going to move ahead. So we've got some papyrus, we've got P8, P45, and P74. And so all of these actually correspond to a, an actual papyrus. And again, this is all noted in the legend in the front of your Greek manuscript. So we have three papyrus. We have several unseals. We have a 4th century, a 5th. Another fourth, a fifth and sixth, and again, these letters uh, represent the name for the names of the uncials. I think, let's see if I can call these out for you. The, the first one is the Sinaiticus, it's fourth century. The A is Alexandrinus, the B is Vaticanus, and the D is Codex Bizet. And then the last one has this interesting numbering code, 0175. It is a fifth century uncial. Um, and so these are, these are, uh, they're actually older and they are held with great regard. Okay, so now next we come to, uh, remember we, we call them the, the meniscals. Um, there's number 33, which is 9th century, uh, 323 and 11th century, 614 to 13th century, 945, 11th, 1175, 11th century, and 1739, a 10th century meniscal. And then there is a term here, AL, which says, and a whole lot of others. 
All right, and then we go on and we can see the symbol down here. It's got LAT, which stands for the Latin Vulgate, and some Old Latin. It's got SYP, remember a, a while back we talked about those ancient versions, the Syriac uh, Peshetta, 4th and 5th century, and then the Coptic. Remember that would have been something that would have been used in Egypt, and it dates back between 3rd and 6th century. So there is our evidence for this last variant. Okay, so what we're going to do then is we're going to stop here and we're going to think about this and try to draw some conclusions as the textual critic here. All right, so the external evidence for number one was late, right? It wasn't old, it's younger. And so a lot of times, again, we said that that doesn't take as much credence, I guess, as those who are older. Uh, it was mostly meniscals, it only had one version, and it had one patristic rider. All right, then the external evidence for number four, we say it's early, it's diverse. In scope, there are papyri, there are prominent uncials, there are several meniscals, there are several versions. And because of this, we have a wide geographical area that's covered where these were found. And, and so what that tells us is that particular reading was widespread, okay? So that's a, that's a very important thing for us to take a look at. All right, what about the internal evidence? All right, so some questions here. If Luke originally wrote that Stephen was full of faith, then in thinking about it, what, what reason would a scribe have for altering the text to say full of grace? And we turn that around a little bit, and we say, well, if the original was written full of grace, then it's somewhat easy to see the scribe either consciously or unconsciously coming up with the phrase full of faith. And you say, well, how do you know that, Mark? Well, back up and look at verse 5 in Acts chapter 6. Take a look at it. Acts chapter 6, verse 5 says this, and, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So verse 5 would actually explain the variant that we saw before, and it would also explain perhaps the variant number 3 where it said faith and grace of the Spirit. So you can see how this might be done as the copyist was doing the work and they created that particular textual variant, you can see what might have happened. So the conclusion is that the convergence of several lines of this external and this internal evidence that we've got before us leads us to make a firm conclusion that Luke originally wrote to Stephen that Stephen was full of grace and power. Okay, so you see how textual criticism looks? I mean, it works. Um, it's like, you know, a bunch of guys in a room, they've got all the manuscripts laid out before them, and they get all the evidence together, and they do it uh, through analysis and process of elimination and looking at all the material that we've done. This is just one example, but, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that the Scripture has been tested like no other ancient document there is. It has been put 
to the test. And so that is powerful evidence for us. And we should never back down from that and shy away from that. So question, was Stephen also full of faith? He was. It says it in verse 5, right? Uh, But it doesn't say that in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Question, is there any doctrine at stake with this textual variant? This is the point. Don't lose the point. Why are we doing all this? This is the point. There's no doctrine at stake. Question, do we know we have the Word of God in this particular variant? Yes. The answer is yes. The mass of material that we have available to us helps us sort out the correct reading. Okay? And so this is the way that we get to the bottom of the truth as it pertains to the accusation that the Bible has been corrupted. So it's important. Uh, The foremost experts who are world-renowned textual critics have spoken decisively on the matter of these textual variants, even in large numbers, that they in no such way cause us or should cause us to have any doubt about the certainty that we have the Word of God today in our hands. Now, you will perhaps see some modern textual critics that may call into question some. You know, we talked about Bart Ehrman. You know, he's a so-called textual critic. Um, But if you go read some of his material, I think you can call his material into question as well. But we have the testimony of several who were textual experts in their time. And let's see what some of them have to say about this. There's a gentleman named F.F. Bruce, who was a biblical scholar in England, and he was an expert in biblical criticism and in exegesis. And he said this, he said, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. Then we have also Westcott and Hort. And they were late 19th century scholars, uh, and they were renowned textual critics. They had this to say, the amount of what can in any sense be called substantial variation is but a small fraction of the whole residuary variation and can hardly form more than a thousandth part of the entire text. That's why we say we have 999th of a thousandth of the original text. Then there was this gentleman named Sir Frederick Kenyon. He was an eminent British biblical and classical scholar, and he had a lot to say about this. So let's take a look at what he had to say. He said, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible, and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. And then he goes on and he says, both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. He says, it is true, and it cannot be too emphatically stated, that none of the fundamental truths of Christianity rest on the passages of which genuineness is doubtful. One word of warning must be emphasized in conclusion. No fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith rests on a disputed reading. Constant references to mistakes 
and divergencies of reading might give rise to doubt whether the substance as well as the language of the Bible is not open to question. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially is the case with the New Testament. He goes on and he says the number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book. And we've already made that point a couple of times. And then the last thing he says here is the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear of hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God, faithfully handed down from generation to generation through the centuries. And as I think about this, um, it is God's providence, isn't it? It's the greatest example, if not the greatest example of God's providence and his providential care and how he has transmitted and has propagated his word to all generations. So when all the textual evidence is considered, the vast majority of the variant readings have been resolved. So hopefully, having gone through this, you know, it hasn't put you to sleep and hasn't bored you, hopefully, no matter what kind of accusations many want to make about the textual variants, now you've got an understanding. You've got at least a background, a basic understanding, and you can have confidence that what we have in the New Testament is indeed the Word of God. So that's, that's why we went through all that. So, All right. Uh, I believe it's time to swap slide decks, please, sir. And we're going to move on. So where are we going next? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, in my studies? Um, well, I don't read Greek, <laughs> so I have to use English versions, right? Um, I will use a combination. Remember how we talked about uh, dynamic equivalence and complete equivalence, you know, idiomatic, and that's what we're going to talk about here in a minute. Actually, this is a great segue, James. Um, yeah, uh, so some versions are literal, and some are not. So some are what we would call a word-for-word -word translation, and some are thought-for-thought. -thought. You have to be careful with the thought-for-thought, -thought, of course, but I think I try to use a combination of all of them. Um, I tend to lean to the ESV and the ASV for more of the literal word-to-words. And, of course, you have the New King James, which if you read about them, they, they claim that they're complete equivalents. You have, you have text, though, and you shouldn't ignore these texts. You should use something like the NIV, which is a dynamic equivalence, right? It's an idiomatic equivalence. Um, because you will actually find some texts there that are actually translated better. Like, for example, uh, it, it talks about getting together on the first day of every week, right? And a lot of the translations, the ones that we hold, you know, as being more or better, um, are not very good in that. But all of them have what I would call their their warts. So I combine all of them together. I also have some, and you know, James can, uh, can attest to this, 
but I like to use the interlinear Bible. Of course, again, I can't read Greek like he can, but you know, I can go figure it out. And I'm also a computer guy, so I like to parse. And so, you know, you can get out tools and look at the Greek word and figure out what the ending means and all this kind of stuff. And so whether it's active or passive voice and all that kind of geeky stuff, right? You can do word studies. But that's what I typically do. Um, so I don't know if that helped, but but that's where we're going next. We're going to talk about translations next. And I was just talking to my good brother, J.B. Johnson, over here. And it, it just occurred to me, seeing him read the Scripture on Sunday morning, that he's using a translation. He has a Braille translation. Have you thought about that? Isn't that cool? So I was talking to him about that, and he said that that was from the King James Version, and it's word for word, although he said he has many other uh, versions, and he likes to read mainly from the computer now as opposed to using Braille, but he does still use that. So isn't that powerful that... He has the Word of God too, just like we do. And he can read it whenever he wants to, just like we can. And aren't we blessed? Aren't we blessed? So uh, I get excited when I start talking about this stuff, as you can't, if you can't tell. So, all right, so let's talk about the translation process as it pertains to this question that we're trying to solve. Has the Bible been corrupted? And I promise I'm going to try to move through this quickly. And we're going to try to get through this, and we'll probably try to finish it up next time, and we'll get into something different next time. So how do we know that the Bible has preserved, been preserved accurately for us? All right? So we've done point number one, right? The Greek text has been authenticated. Even if the reading of a particular passage cannot be determined with certainty, we have alternate readings, and they're available to us, and they enable us to know the possibility, and thus we can get to the original reading. And then even in these cases, there is no point of salvation or doctrine at stake. We've already made that point several times. Number two, the point that we're going to work on now is the translation process works. It simply works, okay? And so we're going to set out to talk about that now and, uh, and take a look at what we mean by that. So what do we mean by translation? Well, if you think about it, God's word was given in a specific point in time, wasn't it? To a specific people who spoke specific languages. But he knew that the vast majority of the human race was not going to speak those languages. All right? So, in other words, there had to be translation into the language of the common people as time went on. All right? And so this means that this translation process, and this is very important for you to think about, has to be flexible enough for God's Word to be conveyed adequately even by imperfect, uninspired translators. Okay? The men who wrote the original text were inspired. No one who copied it or has done a translation since that time is inspired, okay? That's a very important thing for us to remember. So all English versions, which is what we're going to uh, really focus on, have been done by uninspired, imperfect translators. So it is true that some English translations are better than others. It's also true that some of them will use or approach the translation with somewhat of a theological bias, Right? And so we have to be careful with that. 
especially in certain passages. But generally speaking, most translations don't differ in what we're going to call the essentials. And what are the essentials? Well, one is how to be saved. You can go to any of these and figure out how to be saved. The plan of salvation. And we're talking, we're not talking about some of these esoteric things that are claiming to be the Word of God. We're talking about the translations, and we'll get there in a moment, of the text. The Greek text for the New Testament is in particular we're going to focus on. And then the other essential thing is how to stay saved, right? How do we worship? How do we have uh, uh, principles that lead us to daily living? And as imperfect as these versions may be, they still convey this basic information. Okay, this this point can't can't be emphasized enough. So how do, how do we how do we get started? Well, let's illustrate it. Let's go all the way back to 250 BC, and let's take a look at the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? Well, there was a group of Jewish scholars who were invited to come to Alexandria to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, okay? And so this became known as the Septuagint. And so when you go to the New Testament, scholars have carefully examined the quotations there in the New Testament of the Old Testament, and it turns out that there are about 68 direct quotations And most of those quotations are from the Greek Bible or the Septuagint rather than the original Hebrew. Now, that's interesting. That's very interesting to think about. So let's think about the implication of it. So if you think about it, that means that Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Greek Bible. All right? And so that's an implicit, and so some may argue this, but that's an implicit divine endorsement of translation when you think about it. So the Jewish translators weren't inspired, yet God endorsed and inspired the New Testament writers, and so therefore we have an imperfect translation that can still give us the essentials, and that's a very important thing for us to think about. All right, so therefore, our imperfect translations today, no matter what language they are, and we're not going to talk about all the other languages, right? The Bible's been translated into way more than just English. For the most part, they're capable and they are fully sufficient as vehicles for conveying the Word of God to people today. All right? So let's talk about the translation process. What exactly is the translation process? Well, you've got two languages, but you've only got one message. So you want to take what's in the parent language and you want to move it to the receptor language. So an an example would be going from Greek to English. We talked about going from Hebrew to Greek. Um, So we want to convey the parent language into the receptor language. And there are uh, there's also another notion that's closely related to this. Uh, so this is the way translation works. God's message in Greek goes into God's message in English. But we say that a paraphrase is not a translation. Why is that? Because you're going from one message that's in English to a reworded message in English. And so one great example of this, and there's others, is the Living Bible. When I was a little boy, long time ago, my neighbor gave me the Living Bible. I've still got it. And it had basically the New Testament and Psalms. And if you take it and pick it up and look at it, it's, it reads quite differently than what we're typically used to using here. 
like when we're teaching Bible class with the New King James, the ESV, or whatever we choose to use. So this is a paraphrase. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about translation from one parent language into uh, the receptor language. So uh, if you make two different statements in the same language, you know, they're supposed to have the same meaning. So that's not a legitimate translation. That's, that's, a, that's a paraphrase. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this. So we have language and we have a message. Language has to do with the form. It has to do with the physical features of the language. That would be the sound, the structure, and the meaning. So with any language, there's a phonological part of it, right? There's the sound, you know, phonics, right? You've heard of hooked on phonics, right? That's how some children learn how to speak. You have the grammatical features that would engage the structure of the language. And you have what we call the lexical features, and that is the meaning and the forms of the words. All right? Then you have the message. All right, I think I just said all that. You now have the message, and the message is how do we communicate the meaning of the original text in the original language into the receptor language that we're trying to get to. And so um, this is the task of the translator. All right? And so this gets into what I was just mentioning earlier. So let's talk about the translation philosophies. And again, you can look at the front part of your Bible in the fine print, and you can look and see what um, the particular version that you've got is based on. So there's this literal form or this literal philosophy. It's called formal equivalence. It's more of a word-for-word translation. So it's an attempt to maintain the linguistic form of the parent language. So if the original language has... For example, a participle, then what we try to do is we try to make it a participle in the receptor language. Now, I'm a math and computer science person. I'm not an English person. So if I start trying to talk about participles, I'm going to get way off base, right? I used to remember Loretta Jones. She was an English teacher. I used to love having Loretta in my class. I would say, Loretta, I just butchered that, didn't I? Um, So, but what is trying to be done is if, if a certain grammatical form is done in the original, we try to get it into the receptor language. All right? So then we also have the idiomatic. And again, we said that was a thought for thought. So the attempt there is to put the meaning of the original into the linguistic form of the receptor language. So we, we ask, hey, what is the meaning in the original text? And then we try to make it mean the same thing in the receptor language. So you can see where this might be a little dicey, right? If you have someone who approaches a translation process with a theological bias, what could possibly happen here? It would be easy, wouldn't it? Because you're not trying to, you know, go word for word. So it'd be easy to, well, you know, I think that that's what this means, right? So that's why I'm going to write in this new language. And so you, you have to be careful there. But that's not always the case. So both of them are trying to get to the meaning of the original in the linguistic form of the receptor language. So it's a good idea to use both. So the goal of a good translation would do well to perhaps take into consideration both of these translation philosophies. But the, the, the problem with this and the, the difficulty with this is that the translator is always trying to relay the meaning And there is a tension, what's called a tension in that process, because the tension is between, hey, how do I make it accurate, but also readable and also understandable? 
So you can see the, the tension that would occur between there. Um, because you can have something that would be very accurate that you really would take a look at and you might not even be able to understand it, right? It wouldn't read very well. So there's a balance there that has to be done. Uh, so the significant difficulty is selecting a word in the receptor language that conveys the precise meaning of the original word. So this is a difficult part of this process. The receptor language may convey the word, the original word's meaning, but it also may add some meaning to it, or it may actually take away some meaning to it, or it may introduce what we call a nuance, right, into this. Um, so, for example, you, you might consider this, this term Abba. It's the Aramaic for father. And so this is just an example of Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, where some have suggested that this term was a little bit more relaxed, and instead of it being quite as formal as the term father, it almost had a feeling of the word daddy. Okay? And so that would convey the wrong meaning, wouldn't it? That's too casual. That's too informal because daddy carries an additional set of baggage that is not meant to be in the original word. So this is just one example. There's many others that, that, that could be given. So we've only got about five minutes and so we'll keep rolling, which I'm trying to move through this pretty quickly. Try not to bore you to death. All right. So, literal translation. A literal translation, the goal. It strives to preserve as much as possible the parent language's grammatical features so that the English reader can perceive the structure and the meaning of the original. So, again, we say that's a word-for-word. The idiomatic translation follows a more thought-for-thought approach. The goal of conveying the meaning of the original in the grammatical and structural uh, peculiarities of the receptor language. All right, so what are the central weaknesses of each? Well, for the literal approach, it can be awkward and it can be difficult to grasp a meaning if it's not done well, right? Um, and that's why we have so many revisions, and that's what we're going to get into here uh, as we finish up this part of the class. <clears throat> we're going to get into, hey, why are there so many revisions? Well, that's one reason right there. Idiomatic, more than likely... Uh, it's more likely, rather, that you could inject those interpretive opinions into the translation process, right? So you could actually introduce error. So most translations are not purely one or the other, but rather a blending, and it doesn't minimize in any way that the fact that the translation can be done and the message can still be transmitted and relayed uh, to what is meant. Yes, sir? Quick yes or no question. The modern English language has parts of speech, grammar, and punctuation constructs, department of parts of sentences and the like. We all remember diagramming sentences. When, when you take all of that together, did an ancient language like Greek or Arabic have the same type of grammar, punctuation, and parts of speech mechanic? Or does modern translation impose that on what's being gleaned from an original language? I'm not sure I can word your question the way that you did so eloquently, but I think that we're going to give you somewhat of an answer in a moment. Uh, so what the question was, if I can paraphrase it, uh, and without messing it up, was that English has a very 
structured approach, right, with all the things that we talked about. Remember seventh grade grammar, diagramming, and things like that. The question was, do the ancient languages have such a similar structure, right? And then uh, how did that work? And was the translation process something that imposed a structure onto this? Well, I think the answer is that, yes, they did have a structure. It doesn't work the same way as English. And, and I've got some slides here that kind of go into that a little bit. It's probably not going to give you the detailed answer that you might be looking for. But it's a great point and a great question and a great segue, I think, into where we're going. But that's a great point. Um, they, they don't work the same. Um, and I don't know that we're going to have time to get there tonight, but we will definitely next week. But let's just let's let's go to the next slide here just really quick. We talk about linguistic forms, and this, I think, feeds into where we're going here. Parts of speech, you know, nouns, verbs, etc. Voice, you know, passive, active. Is this something that's direct? Is it indirect? Um, what about the word order, right? And what about the sentence length? And then we have parts of speech. All right, maybe this is helping here. I'm not sure, but... Um, so we have the sequence of parts of speech. So we have English, you know, typically you have a noun and a verb, and then you have something that modifies the noun with the adjective. Again, I'm a math major. Don't, don't get upset with me, English people. But look at Hebrew. Hebrew typically worked like this. You might have, it would have the verb, noun, and adjective. So the structure was different. And so you can see how the translation process had to work, right? If you look at Spanish, for example, again, I don't speak Spanish. I barely speak English because I'm from North Alabama. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not even from Big Cove. I'm, but, but the Spanish, you know, you have, you might have the noun, adjective, verb, and then the Greek, it, it varies. Uh, you have, uh, Greek is powerful. I've studied it just enough to know how powerful Koine Greek is. One word can turn into a, almost a sentence. It's, it's amazing. So the translation process, um, is a difficult one, right? All right, we'll stop there and we'll pick up and where we're going to go eventually is we're going to get to all these English translations and we're going to go, well, if we have so many English translations, how do we know that we really do have the Word of God? We'll answer that question. Thank you for your time. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.